Have you ever read a book and thought to yourself, I could explain this to someone else, but maybe there's a few things that I want explained back to me. I'll be sitting down with authors, thought leaders, visionaries. I'm your host, Josh Lipstone. This is Explain This Book to Me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Josh Lipstone, and this is Explain This Book to Me. Today is book three, episode five. I am joined once again by the author of the book, Influence People, Brian Ayer. Now, for those of you who are keeping score at home, we are recording this episode on Friday, September 11th, 2020. Brian, do you remember where you were when 9-11 happened? I do. I was at work. I had just finished a class on the using geocoding and mapping. When I came out, there was a message from my wife about turn on the TV, the plane had hit one of the twin towers. And then I walked down to somebody's office who had a television and we were just fixated the whole day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember I was in college at the time and in my first class, I think it was like a 7.30, 8 o'clock class. And I wrote down you know, on my paper, the date 9-11, one and I thought to myself, huh, nine nine one one. That that's an interesting date. And I went to a Christian university, and September eleventh must have happened on a Tuesday or a Thursday because we had chapel. And as I'm walking to class, um, or I'm sorry, walking to chapel, I get there and it's just completely somber. And we end up finding out what happened at, at that. And um, yeah, it's a day I'll never I'll never forget. Um, I don't think it's a day that any of us will ever, ever forget in our lifetime. And I hope we don't forget it for many generations to come. Um, So the next section of the book that we'll be discussing is business case studies and influence. Um, Now, again, loyal readers, before we get into today's episode, if you've not listened to the first four, then hit pause on this one, go download them, listen to them, and then come back. So let's go ahead and get started explaining this book to me. So we're going to talk about the business case studies and influence. And as we did in our last episode, we're not going to go over all 10 of the business case studies because we want you loyal readers to go out, purchase the book yourself, read about the rest. And we also want this episode to be less than two hours, because if we did all two, it would probably be over two hours. Uh, So what we're going to do is go over five of them for you today. And this is something that Brian and I went through and we picked out uh, together. So uh, we're really excited about this. So, Brian, you begin this section of the book by writing that the business cases we're going to read are based on real businesses and how influence played a role in their success or how it did not play a role, which led to its failure. Mm -hmm. And you remind us that the principles of influence give insight into how people typically behave and think. It's not a magic wand or a silver bullet. However, when the principles of influence are applied towards sales, marketing, leadership, and business coaches, it can have a huge impact. So the first one that we'll be covering is the saddest Kodak moment, and this can be found on page 77. So you write that depending on the reader's age, they may remember the Kodak commercials from the 1970s that introduced the world to the Kodak moment. Now, Kodak itself was founded in 1889 and by 1976 controlled 90% of the market, but their dominance began to slide in the late 1990s and ultimately led to their bankruptcy in January of 2012. 
So what many people attributed to this bankruptcy was the invention of digital cameras and photos. But I feel that even if Kodak would have adapted, they still would have declared bankruptcy within the next five years because of the invention of the smartphone. The first iPhone was created in 2007. The first Android was created in 2008. So Jason Cass, if you're listening, the iPhone was to market first. And that's all I'm going to have to say about that. Now, Brian, do you agree with that? Or do you think that if Kodak would have pivoted in the 1990s, that they could have been more successful um, in the 2000s and the 2010s with maybe making cameras for smartphones and they would still be around today? Um, it, it's, it's just a guess. But I think if they had made that switch, if they'd been that open-minded or that um, open to being persuaded to doing things differently than what got them to that dominance, they probably would have been more open-minded also as they saw more technology changes coming and might have been able to say, maybe we need to develop cameras. Maybe we can develop the camera for the iPhone or other phones. Who knows what would have happened? But I think being so rooted in, you know, we're the biggest in the world, we don't need to change. People need to change in relation to us was a big part of the downfall. Oh, agreed. I mean, take Google, for example. I mean, they start off as a search engine and now they're in our homes, in our phones. Uh, I mean, we uh, use their products. I mean, businesses rely on their G Suite to be able to to run. And if they would have just said, no, we're just going to be the best search engine that's available, they wouldn't be the dominant force that they are today in our lives. Well, and, and think of this, as you were talking, it just hit me. What if Kodak had had the vision of something like Instagram or Flickr or any of those photo sharing apps that are that people love, yeah. they could have completely transformed themselves into, into that area. But again, I think when you're so rooted in this is what's gotten us to where we are and this is why we're successful, we don't need to change, then you start blocking out all types of possibilities. That's so true and definitely applies to the insurance industry and the traditions that sometimes we are so rooted in. Um, now, you go on to write in a book about an article you read by John Cotter titled Barriers to Change, the Real Reason Behind the Kodak Downfall, and reminded you of a conversation that you had with a friend who was fascinated by Kodak and its downfall. So in the article, John Cotter said the following, the Kodak problem on the surface is it did not move into the digital world well enough and fast enough. Recent articles dig deeper and find there were people who saw the problem coming, people buried in Kodak's organization, but the firm did not act when it should and could have, which is decades ago. So, Brian, what about that statement stood out to you the most? It's something that you write about in the book. Yeah, so there, there were people who, who did see what was coming and their inability to persuade the right people, uh, I think, is a big reason that they missed the mark so badly and ultimately lost their dominance and, and filed for bankruptcy. And when I talk to audiences, I almost always will start with, in huge letters, the word yes. And right under it, it'll say professional success, personal happiness. And I'll ask the question, do you agree with the statement that much of your professional success and personal happiness depends on getting others to say yes? And every hand goes up. I mean, people know intuitively at work, you don't even get a job unless somebody says yes to you as a candidate. Uh, in sales, we know that you don't have success until that prospect says yes to your proposal. 
But if you're that manager and you think, well, I'm not in a sales job, I don't need to know that stuff. You do. You mm -hmm. need to persuade your team to take the right actions. You need to persuade those above you that maybe your ideas are the ones that need to be implemented. And I always say great ideas don't become projects until somebody above you says yes. Mm -hmm. So to me, that that's shows that everybody in an organization has to at some level um, have good persuasive skills. Otherwise, those really smart minds who could propel you forward may not be listened to. Yeah. So loyal readers, that is advice to you. If you not, if you are not in upper management, senior management or leadership, and then on the flip side, if you are in one of those positions is to talk with the people who report to you and to take their advice um, seriously, because they're the ones who are much closer to your customers than you may be on a daily basis. So you write that mid-level managers or anyone who is not in a senior management or leadership at Kodak, they need to use the principle of scarcity to persuade those above them, that it was not enough that these individuals who were able to use the principle of authority um, about what they do on a daily basis, but they need to go beyond that to convince the leadership. So again, loyal readers, you need to be able to use multiple principles to be able to convince those above you. It's just not using your principle of authority, being uh, an expert in what you do, but also utilizing something like the principle of scarcity to make that argument. Right. And scarcity, um, it's important because painting that rosy picture of how great we could be, people think they're good enough already. They may not feel like they're losing out on anything by not going to that next level, but by reversing that and talking about what we're losing out by not being open to change or considering this new technology, um, study shows scarcity is more motivated. We'll be more motivated by what we may lose versus what we may gain. So I think those people who, um, understood maybe what was coming if they had been able to use some some social proof hey here's the trends this is what's going on uh you trust me i've worked here for a long time i know what i'm talking about if we don't act here could be the downside that starts to make a very persuasive case to listen closely to what those people have to say rather than just thinking you don't know what you're talking about we're doing fine yeah that makes sense that makes sense so you conclude this section by quoting uh, Sun Chu, who authored the book, The Art of War. And in it, you quote him saying, those who know where and when the battle will be fought can marshal all their resources to the right place. So there were, again, Kodak employees who knew when and where the, the battle needed to be fought, but senior management was too late to act. And because of that, there are less Kodak moments in the world. Mm -hmm. And as you did in the prior section from our last episode, you answered the question, how can you, use, how can you influence people? And here's what you wrote. Continue to become an expert in your field so people will listen to you, but don't stop there. Learn the science of influence so you can convey your great ideas to get the attention of people who can give you the green light. Doing this will ensure your professional success and the success of your organization. So the second uh, case study that we'll take a look at is, will J.C. Penney's new strategy positively influence sales? And this can be found on page 80 of the book. Um, now, before we begin discussing this story, 
I listened to another podcast that had the CEO or former CEO of JCPenney who was responsible for what happened. And you actually wrote a blog article about it this week. So we'll link to that in the show notes, or you can visit Brian's website, which is again, influencepeople.biz. And under the blog section, look for the one titled Hiring for Kindness. So you begin by writing that the story was also on your blog, and it was back in February of 2012, which is a key date and relevant to this story. So in the article, you write about how JCPenney decided to radically change its business strategy. They decided to get rid of traditional sales in favor of lower prices and reduce many items by 40% or more. They also did away with confusing pricing. So no longer was an item $14.99, but now $15. And $19.99 items were either $19 or $20. And we're going to talk about the importance of the $14.99 and $19.99 pricing in just a moment. Now, for JCPenney to help with these impl impl implementation, wow, this morning, uh, words not coming well. So to help with the implementation of these new ideas, they brought in people from Target and Apple. So you continue to write that doing away with the sale, and I'm using quotes here, but loyal readers, you can't see, Brian can, would be like doing away with baseball, apple pie, and motherhood. You just can't do it. Now, you use the example that even if, a 20, if $26 for an item is reasonably priced, it's much better when you can compare it to the normal $45 price to the sales price at 26, which is more than a 40% uh, 40 savings. Mm -hmm. So this is using the compare and contrast tool from our tool belt that we discussed in episode three. So what is mind boggling to me is that in the prior year, 75% of JCPenney's sales revenue came during promotion periods where they had reduced prices by 50% or, or more. So now let's get to the science behind the pricing of $14.99 and $19.99. And you write that in William Poundstone's book, Priceless, the myth of fair value, he cites a study where it compared selling the same item for three prices, $34, $39, and $44. So the results are fascinating to me. So unit sales were the highest at the $39 price. At $39, it resulted in a 9.5% higher revenue than the $44 price. Now, when the $39 revenue was compared to the $34 price, total sales revenue was a whopping 50% more than when the items were sold for less. So Brian, how can someone who's in sales use this information to their advantage if they don't have control over the price? For example, in personal lines insurance, they have no control over the price, which actually may be a shock to some loyal readers who are not in the insurance industry, we don't even get a discount on our own insurance. So yeah. Brian, what could you recommend um, for people who are in sales, but they don't have any control over the price to kind of use this, uh, this tactic or method? Well, specifically what they were looking at there is the impact that certain numbers like nine, right? You say $39, you're like, come on, it's 40 bucks. Mm -hmm. Or $14.99, you're like, come on, it's $15. Um, and even though we think that, all of the studies bear out that things at $14.99 sell much better than $15. $39 sells better than 
the $45. And even though it's more expensive than the 34, because you've got the $5 cushion, even if you don't sell as many, you make more money. So, so there's something about that psychology and people who want to deny it, that's like saying, well, uh, those yellow sticky notes, they wouldn't make a difference on me. Okay. Convince yourself of that. But clearly separate studies show that it can double the response rate. Now, in terms of your, you don't have the ability to set that price at $39. So what do you do? Well, even if a customer didn't ask for it, I'd probably get three quotes. And, and then I would position those quotes appropriately. You're going to have one that's going to be the most expensive and you're going to have one that's going to be the least expensive. And then you're going to have one in the middle. And studies clearly show that most people will buy the one that's in the middle uh, because they will be afraid or a lot of people will be afraid that the cheapest one might not be very good. Or the company might not be good. or Maybe the coverages aren't going to be as good. The most expensive, well, I don't want to pay for things that I don't really want or may not need. I, how, how likely am I to need that coverage or those limits? And so most people will default to the middle. You'll mm -hmm. always have some people who want to buy the cheapest. And you're going to have some people who always say, hey, I'm willing to spend the most because it's the best. But most will fall to the middle. So being very thoughtful about the companies that you're going to present, because you will have to also justify when that person says, well, why is this one so much cheaper? Why is this one so much more expensive? You do need to be ready to talk about that. But I think this is a way where you can leverage, you know, some of what we'll call choice theory, understanding that people will usually default to that middle choice. That makes sense. That makes sense. And you, you said something about um, from, prior in the book and it left my head. So um, I was trying to find it in, in the book quickly. And, and if I remember it, we'll go back to it in just a moment. Uh, but it tied back into something that you had talked about or written about earlier in the book. Um, so getting back to this section of the book. So as you wrote earlier, the former Target and Apple executives thought that all of these changes looked good on the surface, but unfortunately it was a complete failure. And loyal readers, if you remember, I said that the date of February 2012 was important to remember, and here's why. In January 2013, the CEO, Ron Johnson, who had come over from Apple, declared that the new strategy was a complete failure, which saw a 40% decline in the stock price. And just a few months later, in April 2013, Ron was let go as CEO, and then JCPenney went back to their sales strategy. Now, Brian, there was one more story that you mentioned in the book about New Coke. Can you tell the story about New Coke to the loyal readers? Yeah, a lot of people may not be um, old enough to remember this, but there's a point in time Coke was, was and still remains the best-selling soft drink in the world, and they started tinkering with Coke. And they did all types of research. They, they did the logical thing that most people would say you do. You don't just uh, invent something and put it out there, you test it, you have people come in and taste it. And and I think it was by a preference of like two to one, people preferred the taste of new Coke over the older Coke. But the mistake that they made was they replaced Coke with the new Coke. Mm -hmm. So even though people, you know, in general, were saying, we, we like this a lot more, I think they made it a little sweeter, so it leaned a little more towards the Pepsi flavor. Mm -hmm. But once they removed the beloved Coke, scarcity kicked in. People, people railed against it. It's one thing to give me an option, but don't take away what I already love. And, um, and so it was considered one of the 100 worst uh, marketing decisions of the last century. 
Oh, yeah. Um, so again, I want to emphasize on the surface, it, it looked like they did all the right things. They went through their market studies. They went through um, customer testing. They did all of this right stuff, but they weren't also considering the psychology of what happens when we remove this thing that people have loved for like a hundred years mm -hmm. and, and they just got a tremendous backlash. So they brought back Coke and that's where they then had the other option of new Coke. And if they probably would have just positioned it that way to start, they never would have had that backlash and probably would have seen a nice boost in sales. Yeah, I was just thinking as you're telling the story of if they just would have brand brought new Coke and had it alongside Coke, um, how successful they could have been. Um, but that's now why we have Coca-Cola Classic rather than just Coke. Um, so you answer the question of how can you influence people? And here's what you wrote regarding this. Change is inevitable, and businesses must always consider what they stand to lose with change. People often resist change, and too much change too fast can spell disaster. Even test marketing doesn't guarantee success because it may not alert customers to what they might lose. Remember, it's not just about the impact on the business. Assess how customers will respond with an eye of psychology of persuasion, and you'll be better positioned for success. Yeah. So let me, let me quickly say this to John, mm -hmm. that um, the company that I worked for, um, as they became more high tech and brought in more younger people with those technical skills to build their platform, uh, they were they were changing radically and rapidly. And one of the things that they did away with, they did away with um, uh, paid time off. Now, I don't mean that you didn't get any. Um, but the CEO said, um, we're doing away with uh, paid time off in that, you know, Josh, you've been here for five years, you get two weeks, Brian, you've been here for 30 years, you get five weeks, um, you take whatever time you need. Now, on the surface, some people would say, well, that's awesome. You know, you're a younger, newer person. If you want more time, you can take it. Uh, I've been around a long time. It's not restricting me at all. Mm -hmm. So you'd think, well, this is a win for everybody, right? And it wasn't. Because the longtime people said, I earned this. I've been here for, you know, 20, 30 years to get this. Are you telling me this person who's only been here for a few years or five years or 10 years gets to take as much time if they want as I do? And so there was a lot of angst with, with that. For the people who came in new, it's not a big deal. Because right. when they sign up and they ask about benefits, that's one of the things they weigh. When they realize that they come in, um, and, and for most of them, you know, they're starting news, so they don't care. They're like, this is great. Um, but they didn't consider that. And so the messaging that they thought was going to be rah, 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 people are going to love this, they got a lot of backlash. Interesting. Yeah, there are there are some people in the insurance industry who who hold that um, philosophy or, or that, that um, oh, what's the word, um, uh, policy in their agency where you can have as much time off as you need. You just have to get your work done in. Mm -hmm things like that. So I never thought about the the impact of people who are longer tenured, how that would affect them. So very interesting, very interesting. All right. So moving on to our third case study, and this is how Bernie made off with our money, which great play on words there. Um, so this can be found on page 93. And before we begin with this story, it may interest you to know that Bernie Madoff is in a prison about 45 minutes from my office. And why I thought that was interesting to share with you, Brian and the loyal readers, I don't know. I just thought it was an, an, an interesting thing 
uh, to share. So you begin this section by writing that Bernie Madoff is responsible for the largest Ponzi scheme in American business. It's estimated $65 billion was invested, and the vast majority is still missing today. Um, and you were actually invited to speak to a local CPCU chapter in Cleveland, Ohio, about ethics, and you decided to take a different approach um, for your talk by using the story of Bernie Madoff. So your talk was about how he used the principles of influence unethically. And so we're going to break down how he used each of the seven principles. Now, before we get into each one, you give us a couple reminders. So the first is to remind us about how powerful the principle of influence is with regards to human behavior. And the second is that it's crucial for people to understand these principles so they can't be used against you and avoid being manipulated by con men like Bernie Mayoff. So, Brian, what I'd like to, uh, to do is have you walk us through each of the seven principles and how Bernie Madoff used each one to pull off his Ponzi scheme. Would you mind doing that? That's a deeper level of trust, right? Uh, we talked right. about um, it. So it's a shared identity. And so when they're looking at him, they're going to trust him probably more than they might somebody who wasn't Jewish. So he gets even deeper with that. Um, and then with reciprocity, what's interesting is he made it seem like he was doing them a favor mm -hmm. by letting them invest with him because he wasn't the kind of guy that like you or I would just pick up the phone and say, hey, Bernie, I heard some good things about you. I would like to uh, put up my child's savings account. So he, he was talking you know, minimum hundreds of millions of dollars most of the time for, for mm -hmm. people or organizations to to invest with him. So so, you know, when he's giving you time of day, you feel like, wow, you know. I owe this guy something. Um, so you, just with that, you're building all of this momentum. Um, you look at the principle of authority and mm -hmm. with authority. He had helped to start NASDAQ and he was um, a commissioner and he was on a board of ethics. He had all the right credentials. The last person you would think would be somebody who would be scamming anybody. So he's got this great reputation. And then you have consensus where these really wealthy people are looking around or finding out who that client list is. And it included some people like Steven Spielberg, very famous people, very wealthy people, very smart people, mm -hmm. um, and also really smart money investors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a fallacy, Josh, for us to think or our listeners to think, I never would have fallen for that. You know, yeah. everybody's, everybody's super intelligent in hindsight, but, but in the moment, you know, if you had this opportunity and you heard about this guy's glowing reputation and who he works for, uh, and, and you're feeling like he's doing me a favor by even considering me and, and you know, what I want to invest. Um, and then um, scarcity. Scarcity, we didn't have um, an opportunity to invest with him before. This is considered a rare privilege for him to do something like this. The returns that he was getting, which he was sharing for decades. So people thought, well, if it's happening for decades, it's got to be um, legit. So um, you've got this scarcity, like if I don't act now, I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to, to jump in on this. And then what did I forget? Consistency. Consistency. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wrote them down so, so that we didn't miss one of them. So consistency. Yep. Last one. And, and so I, I think with consistency, you know, when you're that mega wealthy investor and you're, you know, touting what it is that you want. And he says that he's got that. Uh, it makes it hard for you to say, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to go there. Uh, I do want to get great returns. I know you have great returns, but I don't feel right about this. I'm going to, 
going to go somewhere else. So uh, that's a real quick overview, but that's a tremendous amount of psychology that's moving you in this direction of, boy, if I got a chance to invest with Bernie, I'm taking it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So you actually conclude this section by writing something that you had already mentioned um, just a moment ago. And it's the reality is we're all susceptible because we're human and the same unethical tricks he played may have worked against us. Mm-hmm. Um, so with this story, you actually ask a different question and then you have in the prior one. So it's how can you defend yourself against unethical influence tricks? And here's what you wrote. Here's my advice. Continue to learn about influence. Keep your eyes and ears open. And most of all, learn to trust your gut because when something seems too good to be true, it usually is. Um, In Robert Cialdini's book, Influence Science and Practice, Uh it's interesting that he really wrote that more from a defensive posture. He's very clear in the beginning. He said that his interest in studying influence and persuasion was because he realized his whole life he'd been a sucker. And he wondered why he so easily fell for the pitches of advertising, salespeople, and and others. So he decided to to study this. And he writes from a defensive posture so much so that at the end of every chapter, he's got a section, how can you defend yourself when Mm. you feel like this principle is being used on you unethically? Um, One of the bits of advice that he gives is to sometimes reframe who you're saying no to, that you're not necessarily saying no to this person, but you're saying no to this rule, like the rule for reciprocity. Just because you gave me something doesn't mean I have to do something for you. And if you're not giving me something out of a genuine um, uh, thought of giving, if you're really giving it as a tactic just to get me to do something, then what I'm saying no to is the tactic. Uh, But he also talks about our guts. And there are times where Everything seems to logically line up, and yet, mm-hmm. you know, deep down, I don't feel right about this. Uh, it could be that somebody's very skillful at asking you questions that are going to just get you to say yes every single time. And the more you say yes, the easier it is to say the next yes. And all of a sudden, you feel like you can't wiggle out from under this. And yet, in your gut, you know that you don't really want to do this. That's where you need to just sometimes say to somebody, I might say, you know, Josh. Everything you've said makes complete sense to me. And there's a part of me that's drawn to that. Mm-hmm. Another part of me deep inside that's saying something's not right here. Yeah. And I'm going to have to trust my gut for now on this mm-hmm. and, and just remove myself from the situation. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing how much your gut or that, that feeling that is right almost every single time. Yeah. It's just uh, something innate in us. Well, think about this. I've said earlier in the book, you know, roughly 90% of the decisions we make are driven by our subconscious. Mm -hmm. We are, even when we are not focused on something, we are still taking in that stimuli. That's a big reason that people could become alert to danger that helped us survive. And I think that's the mechanism that's at work. You can't put your finger on it, but your senses are taking in enough where you're saying something's not right here. And therefore I need to proceed with caution. Did you hear that virtual intelligence and on-hand VAs actually merge? That's right. I was talking to Michael Cruz and checking out what he has there with his Colombian workers. And I said to him, dude, 
what's up? You realize you're not a VA, right? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're a VE. Look it up on ChatGPT. I encourage you to do that too. He's got forward-facing VEs. VEs that can answer the phone and take questions 30 days in. You say yes to Michael. I want what you have. In 30 days, that's what he delivers. I said, Michael, this is unbelievable. We're strong in the front, but we're really strong in the back end. You provide the external VE for us. We provide the internal VE. I looked at him. I said, buddy, let's do this together. Let's let's do this. And he looked at me and he put out his hand and like a good solid Cuban American, he said, Jason, I'm committed. Let's do it. And that's what we did. We flew to Columbia. We saw his operation and you need to see it too. Give us a little click at virtual Intel. That's with two L's. That's virtual I N T E L L dot com. Go check us out. See what we're doing. High quality VEs mixed with technology delivered right into your agency. And you don't have to do all the things that you don't like to do, like hiring, firing, requiring, recreating, trying to find processes. Just there's so much stuff. I can't even say it right. That's right. Virtual Intel cast certified. I wonder, and I could be completely wrong in remembering this, but I feel I've read or seen that, you know, scientists say that humans, we really only use 10% of our brain's, you know, capacity or ability. So I wonder if the fact that 90%, um, have you heard that before? Yeah, that was, that's an old, that goes way back into the early okay. 1900s. And, and okay. the thought then was we only use this tiny fraction of our brain. And if we could use our whole brains, we'd be these super beings. We know now we use a hundred percent of our brain, okay. but we, but what we are doing consciously is a very small percentage, but that doesn't mean that we're not utilizing the rest of it. The human brain, we learn certain things. Like once you learned how to drive very different now, when you drive versus when you were 16 and you're learning how to drive where you're focused right. on everything and it's kind of exhausting. And once you've learned that you relegate it to your subconscious and that's a, that's an efficiency thing for our brains. So we can take that limited consciousness and focus it on other things that demand attention now. All right. Well, good to know. And I won't have that, uh, that idea stuck in the back of my head thinking I'm only using 10% of my brain. Uh, so the next case study that we'll be looking at is the five reasons why Starbucks is so persuasive. And this can actually be found on page 96. Um, now, before we get into the story, I have to make a disclaimer. I don't drink coffee. I've never tried it. And I don't have a desire to. And one of the reasons is I'm afraid if I do, I'll enjoy it too much. And it will become a very expensive habit for me that I don't need to have. Mm -hmm. Um, so, Brian, I do need to tell you another story about my wife and coffee. So this was about five years ago now. We had just moved into our last house. Um, we actually just bought a new house last month. And so the last house we lived in, um, my wife and I, we were at Target buying stuff for it to fill up this new home. And we're walking past the Keurigs in the store. And Hannah says to me, oh, we need to get a Keurig, which was extremely puzzling to me. And I asked her, why do we need a Keurig? Neither of us drinks coffee. We actually had um, as a wedding present, a coffee and cappuccino maker that just sat on our counter and our first home um, just collected dust. I think it was used twice by guests and that was it. So what she said next to me made me basically feel like I had no idea who my wife was. And she goes, actually, I drink coffee every day at work now. 
So it turns out that at her office, they had a Keurig or they got one. And because I now know the principle of consensus, Mm -hmm. she had been lured in by her coworkers to start drinking coffee every day. So I'm curious, Brian, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever learned something about your wife that just completely shocked you? Yeah, but I don't think she wants me to tell the Okay, okay. All right. We'll leave it at that. So, um, loyal listeners, you got to kind of peek into my personal life. So let's go ahead and discuss the five reasons why Starbucks is so persuasive. Um, So you begin the section by writing about what it's like to be inside a Starbucks coffee shop. So picture this, there's smooth jazz playing as the barista and the staff hustle to make coffee for a diverse group of people. There's the smell of roasted coffee beans in the air and all of your senses are being engaged. So no longer does Maxwell House or Folgers rule the morning, but with Starbucks coffee, it can be enjoyed all throughout the day. And what I didn't realize until I read your book is that you don't really see any ads on TV or hear any ads on the radio, see them advertising on billboards or in magazines. And it's amazing how successful Starbucks is with virtually no advertising, which is really the opposite of what the largest insurance companies do. So here are the five reasons you write that make Starbucks so persuasive. So reason number one is that they create an experience when you walk into their store. So Brian, what advice can you give to the loyal readers about creating an experience in their insurance agency like Starbucks does? What are some tips? Well, um, sight, sound, surroundings, smells, all all of those things, right? As I described walking into a Starbucks, you're always hearing um, some kind of cool music. Um, You definitely have the smell of the coffee beans. Uh, So it feels different than if I walked into McDonald's to grab a cup of coffee. And McDonald's has pretty good coffee. Um, But you don't think of it the same way. Um, So I would say, you know, you need to first of all step back and and say, how do we want our clients to experience the agency when, when they come here? Um, and once you start defining what you want that experience to be, do you want it to be upbeat? Do you want it to be relaxing? Do you want it to be, you know, kind of laid back or whatever that is, then you start building around that. You're, you build around that for your employees and what their behaviors are. Um, so, you know, those baristas are always very positive and upbeat. Hey, and so if that's what you want, then you've got to have people who are, you know, at that entryway when someone comes in who help to create that. Um, do you want people to walk in and go, I love walking in here because it always smells so good. You know, what is that good smell going to be? What is that music going to be? Uh, your furniture, all of that creates some kind of experience. Um, and you might be thinking, well, nobody wants to come in to an insurance agency's office. Well, maybe if you start changing some of those things, they will want to come in a little bit more. And that's a good thing because the more that they see and interact with you, the harder it will be for them to be dislodged by another agency. That makes sense. So reason number two is that the baristas and others who work at Starbucks seem to really enjoy their jobs. Mm -hmm. So the company knows what it wants an employee and does a great job in hiring the right people. The employees will greet you to ask you how your day is going and engage in ways to make you like them. And so they use the principle of liking to make you come back. So, Brian, do you believe that the people that work at Starbucks try to like each customer that comes in, which is why customers like them so much? 
I, well, I think so. I think it starts with them. It's not that we're walking in and going, hey, and then they're saying, hey, back to us. They're the ones who are initiating. And, and I would ask listeners to just imagine for a moment if you've been to Starbucks and what that's like when you walk into most um, mm -hmm. versus, again, McDonald's. You, you, McDonald's, you probably have a teenager who saunters up to the counter, you know, can I help you? And, um, versus that person who's like, hey, you know, and they're very upbeat and you just, it brings you up. So right. um, now some of that I'm sure has to be trained and, you know, shame on McDonald's for not maybe doing a better job in terms of trying to create that atmosphere. But you feel entirely different. You feel so much better about that transaction. You're paying a lot more for the coffee. But after a while, you're not thinking about that. You're just saying, I love going to Starbucks. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that people don't buy the cheapest thing for everything. I mean, you can always find something for less. And uh, yeah, people don't. It's about the experience and the value that they're getting out. Yep. Um, so reason number three is that the Starbucks cups are very recognizable. And it's very easy to spot them when you're out and about. And the principle of consensus tells us that people look to others to get a sense of what's appropriate and with the amount of Starbucks cups that are out there in the world, there are a lot of people who agree. So Brian, what can an insurance agency do that would make people recognize them in the community and create that principle of consensus? Um, anytime you've got some, well, you, you could, if you had like nice um, travel mugs, because if you have a nice coffee mug, that's probably not doing anything except staying in the house. So that's not doing what you intend other than maybe reminding your customers of who they have their insurance with. But if you want to kind of get that free advertising, you need to think about, okay, what are, what are things that people would probably have with them on a consistent basis? And if it's a really nice Yeti, mm -hmm. um, but again, you're going to have to make sure that it stands out where somebody's like, wow, that's a different looking Yeti. Oh, I got it from my insurance agency. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, certainly billboards. I mean, the more people see your name, see your faces, the more it you know seeps into that subconscious. But you really need to think about what are those items that people are going to um, get utility out of on a regular basis where other people would be able to see that. Um, some people might be willing to wear a T-shirt that has the agency name on it because, you know, working in the yard or taking walks. I mean, that might be a, a really good thing. And the more people see that, the more they start going, huh, that Lipstone agency, I see their name everywhere. I should probably check them out next time I have uh, my insurance come up for renewal. Yeah, um, there's an, uh, an agency, uh, David Crothers, who is the last one on the podcast. Uh, his, his agency, Florida Risk Partners, does an excellent job with that, with t-shirts, hats, uh, travel mugs, different <laughs> things like that um, to get their brand out there in the community. Yeah, but there's some things I've seen that are given away that uh, mm -hmm. might be a, a, a blanket uh, mm -hmm. people just keep in the trunk of their car. Okay, that's that's not even reminding them about, about your agency. So you really have to think about what do I want people to get out of the experience of this item? And I think a coffee mug at home is fine if you want them to continually think about you. Right. So reason number four is the Starbucks app, which I actually have because I will order coffee for my wife. And the best part for me is her ability to be able to enter in her favorite drink or tell me what it is. So I don't have to either search for it or remember it. And then I can just pick it up for her and surprise her with it. So the app also used to provide a free song each week, which kind of helped with the principle 
of reciprocity. Mm -hmm. And then reason number five is part of the app, and that's the ability to add money to a virtual gift card that allows you to pay without using cash. So it's much easier when you add $25 to $50 at a time to the app to order your coffee rather than going to other places that require you to pay each time. And so you write that they've almost removed the pain of pain of paying for things. So Brian, do you think that an insurance agent agency needs to provide an app to their clients or do you think it would be used so infrequently that they'll forget that the app is even on their phone? Um, it would depend on how good the app is. There, there are certain organizations that have apps that I just like, I never use. Mm -hmm. um, because I am a frequent Starbucks user and I looked at the app and I realized things like the store locator. Okay, I'm in an unfamiliar city, but I want a Starbucks. Oh, there's one two blocks away. Mm -hmm. um, it makes it so easy to, to do that that I find a tremendous amount of utility in the app. Just the other day, I had gone a week ago to a Starbucks near me and they had very limited, but they had seating inside. I'm like, great, I can finally get back to something I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. Then I went back earlier this week and the door was locked and they weren't allowing people in. Mm. And I, I thought, well, what am I going to do? Oh, I got the app. And I had never ordered on the app before because I always went in. But I realized, oh, I'm going to just order. I put my laptop down at a table that was outside and I still had Wi-Fi connection. In five minutes, I walked in and got my drink and I stayed there and I did my work. So there was the utility of the app that it allowed me to still get a drink and have some Starbucks experience, although not within the four walls. Um, so anybody who's developing an app, you've got to say, you got to ask yourself, why will people want to use this and what value are we giving them that's going to keep them coming back? Uh, with my insurance carrier, I just downloaded their app and signed up online. And, and so I will go in and occasionally, you know, double check things and, and look at that rather than having to go sort through paper. And, um, right. But it's got to provide something for me that makes me want to go in. Um, another example, I bought a, a new car recently and, and they have an app and I signed up. So now it's going to remind me of when I need to go in and, and get um, oil changes and everything that I need to do that I have to remember, I forget. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's been 5,000 miles since the oil change. Uh, so there's got to be some real utility. It can't just be that, hey, we got an app. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. You know, and But what I will say is, you know, potentially um, maybe... I, I've had this idea a long time ago um, when I was working for the insurance company and the internet was relatively new. And I remember thinking, man, if I were an insurance agent, I would be cross-promoting my customers. I'd be letting that new person who's moved into the area, hey, if you need a handyman, we insure three. We don't um, promote or recommend one over the other, but here's three that the agency insures and they're all good. Um, to to get that cross-selling kind of, because then if somebody's considering going to another agency and you say, well, you know, um, I can understand you might want to save a few dollars, but do you think this agency is going to point you in the direction of a good mechanic like we did for you, you know, when you moved in? Do you think they're going to point you to repair people? You know, that's part of the service that we're giving you here at the agency. You could probably facilitate that through an app. So, mm -hmm. You know, eventually somebody's going to do something like that, and other people are going to go, "Oh my gosh, that's brilliant! Why didn't we think of that?" Yeah, that is a because our agency does have an app, and I don't believe that is not a feature that it has. So, I, when we get off uh, recording today, I'm going to send an email to them and say, "Hey, this is an idea. Can you guys make it happen and yeah. see what they 
can do with that. And, so. and I think especially for your commercial customers too, that if you get their permission, like, hey, we would love for people who are insureds of this agency to see your mm -hmm. name if they need this type oh, of yeah. service. Um, I'm sure they're going to say yes, right? And then if that commercial customers consider leaving, you say, well, how much business have you gotten? Because, you know, some of our customers have gone there. Do you think that you're going to get that at another agency that's not going to promote you the way we're promoting you? And that exactly. gives them a strong reason to stay with you. Yeah, it's going beyond just offering insurance. It's becoming an advisor, not just a risk advisor. Right. To them. So you conclude this section with something that the loyal readers need to hear, and that is the question, is Starbucks for everyone? And the answer is no. And so this applies to you, loyal readers, in your business and in your life. So you and your business are not for everyone. So this means you don't have to say yes to everyone that calls you. You don't have to say yes to everyone who comes into your life. This is the permission to say no to those who are not the right fit for you. So you answer the question of how can you influence people? And here's what you wrote. Starbucks gives you several things to consider. Number one, how can you create a unique experience for your customers? Number two, is there anything you can do to make where you work a place employees enjoy working and customers want to hang out? Number three, what can you give that will make people want to give in return? Number four, can you create something that will get people to advertise for you? And number five, what can you do to significantly reduce or even better remove the pain of pain of pain? So the final case study is don't take it personal. It's just business. This can be found on page 98. And loyal readers, you may remember that I've talked about this in the past and how the phrase it's not personal. It's just business is a soapbox item for me. So you begin this chapter by writing about the movie Taken. Brian, would you mind telling the loyal readers the basic plot of the story, what the main character is, who he is, and how the movie actually had an impact on your personal life? Sure. Um, so the movie Taken is uh, about Liam Neeson. Um, he is divorced and he's got a, a teenage daughter and she wants to go to Europe with a friend of hers. And he is ex-CIA. He is not very big on this idea. He's an overly protective dad, but he yields to it and, and she goes over there and she is um, uh, meets somebody. It seems like it's random, but she meets somebody and ultimately that person and a number of other people kidnap her and, and her friend and, and put them into the um, sex slave trade. So Neeson uses his uh, CIA skills to track these people down, basically to hunt them down, and ultimately locate his daughter. And the scene that always stood out to me was when when the guy who was the head of this orchestrating it, he was very rich, well-to-do, he's having this party, and Liam Neeson corners him in an elevator in, a, in his home, and he's about to shoot him, and, and the guy says, you have to know it was just business, it wasn't personal. And Neeson said it was all personal to me, and he shoots him. And people cheer when that happens. Um, the reason it was very uh, close to home for me is my wife and I saw the movie the day before we were putting our daughter, who was 13 at the time, on an airplane to New York to stay for a long weekend with, with my aunt. So uh, it made us a little nervous, but at 13, you know, we had escorts and things. And so we were, we were okay going ahead with that plan. But, uh, but the movie was the basis of, of that saying, because we hear it all the time. Hey, you know, don't take it personal. It's just business. Yeah. As I write in the book, we, you know, most of us, if we work from our you know, early 20s until we're 65 or later, we're going to put in a, probably 100,000 hours 
at work. It is hard to separate who we are from what we do. That's why we use the term I am. I am a postman, I am a salesman, I'm an insurance agent. We closely identify who we are with what we do. And therefore, when we're rejected in that, we do take it personal. Yeah, and, and I love the fact that you say, you bring up the point where people do say I am and then they list what they do because yeah, I mean, with the majority of our times being spent at work rather than with loved ones, it, we can't help but identify with what we do when we're talking to people. Mm -hmm. um, so your advice that you give of how to not take it personally is one that I love because it gives me permission to lean into it rather than run for it. So Brian, can you remind the loyal readers about the quote from Jeffrey Gitmore and how they can armor plate their clients? Uh, with the all things being equal, oh, yeah. Yep. So Jeffrey Gittimer, uh really taps into the principle of, of liking when he says, all things being equal, people prefer to do business with their friends. All things not so equal, people still prefer to do business with their friends. And I think for most people, when you're given an opportunity to purchase something and you look at one salesperson and you say, I know this person, I like him, I trust him. Mm -hmm. and you look at the other person and you say, I don't know you. Doesn't mean I don't like you. Doesn't mean I don't trust you. But I don't. I don't have any foundation for that yet. If two people put essentially the same product or service on the table, virtually everybody's going to go with the one that they know, like, and trust. And depending on the depth of that relationship, they may be willing to spend significantly more to go with that person because they know that they're getting more than the product or service. They're getting the backing of, of that friendship and the trust that comes with it. Uh, definitely. I mean, it, it's just like when, you know, when my wife and I, we were moving recently and um, we had some things that we needed to get rid of. So we decided to sell a few things and a friend of ours um, that we hadn't really talked to or seen in a number of years messaged us and said, hey, you know, is this item still available? And it wasn't very expensive. And because of our friendship, I just said, hey, you know what? You can have it for free. And it's because... I liked her versus the other people who I had no idea who they were, um, just a complete stranger to me that was going to pay, you know, 20, 30 bucks, whatever it was. But I was okay because I liked her to be able to give her that item because I knew that she would enjoy it. Yeah. And, and it's very likely that sometime down the road, she's going to do something nice for you in return. Like maybe, okay. maybe you're going to go to dinner and you have no expectation. And she says, no, really, we want to get it. You know, that was so nice when you gave us that. And, and everybody wins there. Exactly. Um, so at the end of the section, you write about a study that was done with Stanford University and Northwestern Universities, mm -hmm. where the students were given a task to negotiate a deal. And in Group A, they were told to keep things strictly business. Group B, they were told to get to know their negotiating partners by exchanging pictures and email. And the fascinating thing is that the group that got to know their negotiating partner was five times more successful than the ones that did not. So Brian, what advice can you give to the loyal readers about being able to get to know their prospect or their client that will help them be more successful? Well, first I'll say this about the study. The, the variable that they measured was failure to negotiate some kind of deal. Uh, okay. They were MBA students, so they're very smart, highly competitive people. The project that they were on was 25% of their grade and failure to negotiate any deal. They weren't looking at how good or bad, but just if you can't negotiate a deal, you get a zero. So they knew there was a lot on the line. 
and only 6% of the people who um, got to know their partners were unable to negotiate something. But 30% of the people who kept it strictly business did not negotiate a, a deal of, of any kind. Um, and so what I think that points to is if you and I begin to get to know each other, and in fact, you know, you and I haven't really known each other very long, but through the podcast, we really have started to get to know one another. If you and I now had to negotiate something, we would have a much better opportunity to come up with some kind of deal because I get a sense that you like me, I like you, there's respect and trust. There's all these variables that will, I think, have us hang in there longer and work harder to come up with a deal. But if I had never met you before, and then we had to sit down and try to strike a deal, I could easily get frustrated quickly, and probably you could too. And if we didn't negotiate a deal, it'd be very easy for either one of us to point the finger and say, well, it's his fault. So I think it's critical that we uh, do what we can to get to know people because we will have a better opportunity to negotiate a deal, close the deal, uh, get that first appointment, whatever it is that we need them to do. And that goes back to the principles of liking, that if we have things in common, uh, reciprocity, if I can do something that genuinely helps you and you feel good about me, and if I can discover anything about unity, that we, you know, maybe it's, you know, we've talked a little bit about faith, sharing the same faith. All right. of those things build a momentum to say there's relationship here. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, thank you for that and that advice. And so we're going to finish this up with answering the question of how can you influence people? And here's what you wrote. Would it be beneficial for your business if you could seal the deal significantly more often than what you're currently doing without having to spend more money? All it takes is a bit of effort and conversation to do these two things. Take time to find similarities with people you do business with. Talk about what you have in common uh, is an easy way to bond with another person. Look for things about the other person. You can genuinely praise them, then pay them a compliment. They'll feel good about you and you'll convince yourself they are a pretty good person in the process. Fortunately, we don't have to try solving our business problems like Liam Neeson had to give. Give these two simple ideas a try and you'll build better relationships, the kind that will hopefully make, don't take it personal, it's just business, a thing of the past. And with that, we've reached the end of today's episode. So thank you, Brian, again, for joining me on book three episode five of influence people we are one away from the final one so next time will be episode six that will be the final episode uh, for book three loyal readers again if you'd like to get in touch with brian please visit his website at influencepeople.biz or connect with him on facebook because he is a great resource and he has a lot of great articles on there so please make sure that you're subscribed to Agency Intelligence Podcast. And if you have 90 seconds to spare today, would you please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform? Because when you do that, others just like yourself will find us and we'll be able to impact more people because of you. If you haven't already purchased Brian's book, then check out the show notes where there's a link to purchase it on Amazon. As a reminder, again, we are on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash explain this book to me. And we'd love it if you can like our page because we want to connect with you with you outside of the podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts, any book ideas for future uh, episodes you'd like to share with me, please email me at josh at agency intelligence.com. 
and loyal readers, thank you again for downloading the fifth book of our, I'm sorry, the fifth episode of our third book of the Explain This Book to Me podcast, where I sit down with authors, thought leaders, and visionaries to explain the book to them and have them answer the questions that I have. Remember to be safe, be healthy, and love everyone. This has been Josh Lipstone with Explain This Book to Me. <music>